It's a complicated psalm. It's got a lot of strange imagery, and we're not going to plumb its depths tonight, but I hope as we skim the surface, so to speak, we'll, we'll be encouraged. So David wrote this psalm. We're not sure exactly when. Um, it's probably after he was in Jerusalem, and we'll see why as we read. And we're not exactly sure who he wrote it to or what the intended audience was, um, but I think it's really applicable to us today, and I'm glad we can read it. So I'm going to ask someone who has the New King James Version to stand up and read the first three verses of Psalm 68. So if you have the NKJV, if you could read the first three verses, that would be helpful. I like how they translate it better than what the ESV did. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. 68, right? Yep. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As way, oh, I'm sorry, as wax melts before the fire. So let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Thank you, Darren. So it opens with a prayer, and David says, God arise. And when God arises, two things happen, right? His enemies are scattered, they're destroyed. They're like wax which melts, they're like smoke which blows away. And so the wicked are destroyed, the righteous, they exult. They're jubilant with joy, they're they're glad, they're singing. And so this is an introduction here. What we're going to see in this psalm is God's going to fight a battle, And then he's going to go to his coronation when someone becomes a king or a queen, or maybe they do it with dukes, I don't know. You go to a coronation, it's an official ceremony. It's kind of like when we have a president being sworn in. I guess we don't call it a coronation, but it's kind of the same thing. A guy who's not the president yet walks up, all his supporters are there and they're cheering and everyone's saying, this is awesome. He does some things, he says some things, he puts his hand on some things, and when he walks out, he's the president. And so in the same way, we're going to see, this is poetry in Psalm 68, we're going to see God defeat his enemies, win a battle, and then go to his coronation to be crowned king. And we're going to see God arise. All right, I'm going to read verses 4 through 6. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. So we see our first command, right? Our first imperative, our first something David tells us to do in verse 4. Now, he's commanding sing, to God, sing praises to a name, lift up a song to him. I want you to remember that for later. But who is David talking to in verse 4? Who is he commanding to do something? Us. Us. That's right, the readers. He's telling us to do something. Now, I'm going to skip ahead here. When we read this psalm, we see eight commands. That's the better way to do it. Eight commands given to people. There are eight imperatives, and all of them, All of them say, praise God, sing to God, bless God, ascribe power to God. Every single command given to people in this psalm is some form of, hey, you, praise God, 
So what does that tell us about this psalm? As we're reading the rest of this, if we know every single command given to us is praise God, what does that tell us about this psalm? How does that help us as we're interpreting this? Yeah, we know the reason David wrote it. He wrote it so that we would praise God. He wrote it so that people would praise God. So as we're going through the weird imagery and the the poetry, let's remember the point is he wants us to join him in praising God, to sing to God. And I'm going to ask Miss Sue and Miss Hazel at the end if we could sing Majesty one more time after we're done here. I just thought of that like after you started. So I think that would be good. It tells us to sing and we're going to do it. All right, let's read verses 7 through 10. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. And your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. So we have God going out before his people, marching through the wilderness. When did God march through the wilderness? Forty years, right? The Exodus. So God rescued his people from Egypt, led them through the desert and into the promised land. So David is referencing that story. So what we see in Psalm 68 is a very poetic retelling of that story. So now we know kind of where David's coming from. We know what he wants us to do. So let's see how he gets us there. As we read a poetic retelling, we know that he often uses hyperbole. That's when you overstate something to make a point. And we're going to see that in these next few verses, verses 11 through 14. So he's retelling the Exodus, the march through the wilderness, and he's doing it so that we would praise God. So I'm going to read verses 11 through 14. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. I'll stop there. Your translation may just say a great host announces the news, but in the Hebrew it's in the feminine. So it is a group of women. The women who announce the news are a great host. Verse 12, the kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman, or it looks like snow falling on Zalman. Can you guys think of a time when the Israelite men were lying around in fields, and God went out and won a battle? I can't. That was kind of a trick question. (laughs) That never happened. So David is using hyperbole um, to talk about great victories that God won for his people. Now, what are some battles? This is not a trick question. What are some battles God fought? Who are some enemies God and Israel defeated in the desert? Can anybody remember some? Joseph. Jericho. Well, let's go even before Canaan. Let's go between Egypt and Canaan. Who are some enemies that God and Israel defeated? But you are right, they did get Jericho. Well, there was uh, Sihon, king of the Amorites. There was Og, what a name, king of Bashan. 
And both of those uh, enemies came out and they tried to battle Israel and God whooped them. And Israel took their land. So they said, not only are we going to beat you, we're going to expel you and we're going to live in your houses and we're going to drink from your wells. It's going to be great. So God defeated them. Now in the real battle, the Israelites fought. They weren't lying in fields. Okay, some of you wives may think that's my husband lying in the field in the middle of the sheepfold. (laughs) But they actually did fight. They actually did fight. But David's making the point that even though they fought, God's the one that won the victory. Yeah, they swung some swords and they pushed some spears, whatever else you do in battle back then. But God's the one that gave them that victory. Now, it gets kind of weird. So verse 13, the women divide the spoil, though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. What in the world does that mean? I guess that's my job, right? <laughs> I was trying to farm that out. All right. Um, I think what it means, and this is just me, so take it for what it's worth. The women at home divide the spoil. The spoil looks like the wings of a dove covered with silver is pinions with shimmering gold. So I think it's describing all the spoil and all the stuff they got from Og and Sihon and those armies and those places. It was so great, covered with silver, shimmering gold. They got a lot of good stuff. That's my take. You can take it or leave it. Um, So God won the victory. He gave his people spoil. And this this was the battle that we were going to see. God just won the battle. And after this, after these verses, we're going to see the coronation begin. When God goes to his sanctuary to be crowned king. So he's won the battle. The enemies are defeated. It's now time to crown the king. So I'm going to read verses 15 through 18. O mountain of God, or you might say mighty mountain, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among them, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. Okay, so again, this is poetry. So we have this super tall, cool mountain of Bashan, and it's jealous. You guys see that? Why do you look with hatred at the mount that God desired for his abode? So God conquered Bashan. But he didn't live there. He decided he wanted to to take another mountain and make that his sanctuary. And so Bashan is looking in jealousy at this other place. What place did God choose for his sanctuary? You could call it the tabernacle. You can call it the temple in Jerusalem. Do you remember? Zion, I think I heard it. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, that's where God chose, not mighty Bashan. And so Bashan looks on jealously. Now, verse 18, that should sound familiar, right? Where do we see this verse in the New Testament? The book of Ephesians, chapter 4, that's right. And it's, uh, it's interesting, we'll, we'll get to it later. It, it applies it, Paul applies it to Jesus. But here in Psalm 68, we have God who won the battle, and now he's marching to his sanctuary. And behind him is a whole host of captives. 
A whole host of defeated enemy soldiers are trailing behind. I imagine they're in chains and they're walking. Yeah, he beat us. And God is walking to his sanctuary with a whole host of enemies behind him and, and receiving gifts among men, even the rebellious. Now, what I picture is God, the king, he has defeated his enemies. He's marching to his sanctuary for his coronation. And up come foreign envoys or foreign dignitaries, and they're giving tribute to God, the king, because God just won the battle. And so they just, they're acknowledging that God is God. They're acknowledging that he's the king. He has the authority. He has the power. And we better give him a gift before he comes and destroys us too. Do you guys see that? Am I making that up? I hope not. So when he's receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, the formerly rebellious countries, they're coming up. They're acknowledging God's victory and their own defeat. They're acknowledging that God is the king. And they're giving him tribute. Any questions on that? I have a question. Not exactly on that. Okay. I'm just curious what your understanding of Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Yeah, thank you for asking. So in verse uh, 17, it talks about God's chariots, the Lord is among them, and then Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Sinai is a mountain. So how can it be in a tabernacle or a temple, the sanctuary? Um, I think what it means, and again, this is poetry. Um, when God met with Israel after he brought them out of Egypt, it was on Mount Sinai. And so that was the place where God revealed himself. That was the place where he audibly spoke to the Israelites. And now the place where God meets with his people is the sanctuary, at least now being David's time. And now David's time, the place where God reveals himself is through his prophets and, and in the sanctuary. Does that make sense? So it's, I think the, the purpose of Sinai is now in the sanctuary. It could be the law. The law. I didn't think about that, Andy. The law was given on Sinai, and then they put the tablets in the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the tabernacle, in the temple. That might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that refers to the Lord among his chariots like his, his great army. Um, but yeah, I, now, now that you mentioned that, Andy, I like that idea of um, the tablets that's now in the sanctuary. So something, some, something to the effect of God's revelation, the place where you meet with God, the law, is now in the sanctuary, is now in the tabernacle. Don't go to Mount Sinai anymore. That, that's done. Now it's the, the sanctuary. That's my interpretation. Um, all right. Any other questions on anything in 1 through 18? Okay, so God won the battle. He's walking to his coronation. His enemies are marching behind him. Foreign dignitaries are giving him tribute. They're giving him uh, gifts, and he's receiving them as the conquering king. Now let's now read verses 19 to 23. So verse 19 here. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation, excuse me, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. 
that you may strike your feet in their blood. Be blessed. That the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. This is an aside, but if you're looking for a verse to memorize this week, Psalm uh, 68, 19 is great. I, I don't like what NKJV did with it. You load us up with blessings. That's, that's the with blessings part. That, they just made that up. So I would memorize the ESV if you're going to memorize that. He daily bears us up. Okay, anyway, so we're, they are rejoicing in God. He is a God of salvation. He has saved us from death. He will strike the hairy crown of his enemies. And then 22 and 23 is kind of weird, right? Isn't that gratuitous? Isn't that a little over the top? Like we're going we're gonna to bring back the dead enemies from Bashan, like Og. We're going to bring back the dead enemies of Egypt from the depths of the sea so that you can walk in their blood and the dogs can lick it up. That's, that's kind of weird. It's okay to say that, right? I hope it is. You don't have to memorize 22 and 23. <laughs> you, you can if you want. But um, I, I think the only thing I could think of, and I, I think what's going on is, you know, sometimes um, I'm told you fight a battle and you beat the enemy, but then the enemy comes back and you have to fight again. Or maybe you kind of won the battle, but, you know, he's going to come back next year and you have to do the same thing over again. Well, these enemies, they're, they're gone. Like, once and for all, they're, they're dead. There, there's no second battle. There's no comeback for Og. There's no comeback for Egypt because they're dead. And how you know they're dead? I'll drag them from Bashan and I'll drag them from the sea and you can look at them. So when God won the battle, he won the war. This was a one-time thing. God did it and he's going to be king and, if, and his enemies are long gone. Does that make sense? Okay. And that will come into play um, in just a little bit. So let's read verses 24 through 27. Here we come to the actual coronation when God's going to be crowned here. Again, this is poetry. I'm not saying God had an actual coronation. 24. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God and the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them, in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. So we see that God has won the battle. He's entering the sanctuary, and all the good guys have come together, and they are having a great time at this coronation. So if I could be nerdy for just a minute... Have you guys read Lord of the Rings or seen the Lord of the Rings movies? Isn't it such a cool scene in the last book, the last movie, when uh, King Aragorn is crowned? Do you guys remember that? All the good guys are around. All the bad guys have been defeated. Everything's fine. And they all get together and they have this giant party and the king gets crowned. He becomes the official king. That's what I picture when I read these verses. And it's just such a cool sight. The bad guys are gone. The good guys are together. They're crowning the king. Bless the king. So that's what we have going on right here. And again, we have an imperative, a command, verse 26, bless God. Now this is actually to Israel, but still to people, bless God. All right, I think that these verses, and really you could say this psalm, um, I believe this is telling the story of when David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. 
You have God entering the sanctuary. You have the good guys saying, bless God. And it reminds me of 2 Samuel 6. So if I had to guess, I would say that's, that's the occasion he wrote this for. But that's just a guess. So what we see is, if I'm right, a poetic retelling starting in Exodus and all the way to 2 Samuel. And we're going to see it even goes beyond that. So we have a really neat retelling of most of Israel's history. Well, maybe not most, but a lot of it. Any questions? All right, let's read verses 28 through 31. 28 through 31, another prayer. My translation says, summon your power, O God. Yours might say, your God has summoned your power. That's fine. The power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. I should say that verse 30 has a lot of translational issues. So if you read something different, um, I really don't know what to tell you. Verse 31, nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. So I really like this imagery. David prays to God and says, either says, summon your power. Perhaps he says, your God has summoned your power. The power by which you have worked for us. Strengthen what you have done for us. And then what happens? What happens as a result of this prayer? Nobles come from Egypt. Ethiopia stretches out her, Cush is Ethiopia. Ethiopia stretches out her hands to God. So God has won the battle. He's installed as king. And now, do we have, do we have Gentile nations coming to God, stretching out their hands? Well, that's interesting, I think. So we see that the result of God winning his battle and being crowned king is that Gentiles are joining and praising God. That's really cool because that's what happens in the New Testament, right? And we'll get there in just a minute. So I want to go. Um, God's victory has caused the Gentile nations to draw near to God and to acknowledge his majesty. So let's read verses 32 to 35. It gets even better. So now David is talking to the kingdoms of the earth. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice, ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. So, what, so David's talking to Gentile nations, all the kingdoms of the earth. And what is he telling them to do? He's telling them to sing. Now you would expect him to say, submit to God. You would expect him to say, kiss the son lest he be angry and destroy you, Psalm 2. But instead he says, hey, all you Gentile nations, all you enemies, come sing to God. And that just blows my mind. The, the, the result of God winning the battle, of God being uh, crowned as king, is that there's a call that goes forth from Israel to the entire earth that says, come and sing, come and join us as we sing and worship God. And so God wants his enemies to become his worshipers. And not just Israel, but the entire earth. 
Praise the Lord. I mean, this is the New Testament right in the psalm, right? Weren't we enslaved to sin just like Israel was enslaved in Egypt? And didn't Jesus come and rescue us just like God came and rescued Israel? Didn't Jesus die on the cross and rise again? And then where did he go? He ascended to his heavenly Zion, his heavenly Jerusalem. He was crowned. Can I say that? I'm kind of stretching it. But he was crowned. And then a call goes out to all the earth. Come and sing to our God. No, not, hey, you got to get your act straight. Jesus is coming back. No, it's come and sing. Everyone is welcome to worship this God because of his great victory and the authority which he has. Praise the Lord. And so we see David's prayer in verse 28 results in all the nations coming to God and worshiping him. I was really encouraged to see when when you think about um, all the nations, we think New Testament. Well, it's in the Old Testament too. And so I would like to pray. Does anyone have any questions first? Yes, Andy. You know, I thought about it, Andy. I really did. But here's the deal. I don't want to go to the pool. I don't want to climb up to the highest diving board. I don't want to dive headfirst into all the controversies of Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. But, you know, we'll turn there. It's fine. There's stuff I just don't have time to get into. But if you want to turn to Ephesians 4, I'll, I'll read it and give a couple of thoughts here. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. And so Paul is saying uh, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then we have verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions? the earth, or the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And then it goes on to say how Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the teachers for the, for the equipping of the church. So Paul takes Psalm 68 and he applies it to Jesus in Ephesians 4. He changes, you remember in Psalm 68, um, God received gifts? Well here, Christ is giving gifts. And he also, um, I'll just stop there for a minute. This is the controversy I didn't want to get into, but Jesus at least descended to earth and maybe even further than that, if you believe he descended to Hades, that's fine. And he also ascended back to heaven. So in the same way that God, there's not really talk in Psalm 60 of God descending, but he certainly ascends. And you could say that he descended to save the Israelites, and that's fine. So we see Jesus um, doing the same things, some of the same things as God in Psalm 68. He descended, destroyed his enemies, ascended, and now all the earth is called to praise him. And now he's not receiving gifts, he's giving gifts so that the church may be built up, so that his people may be equipped. That's all I got for you, Andy. We, we can go deeper into that if you want, and uh, that'd be fun. I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing majesty one more time. God, um, we thank you for your word. Thank you for winning our battles, our war. Thank you for the call that has gone out is not submit or run, but rather sing and join and run to you. Would you show your power, and would many run to you this year in America, in China, 
in Kenya, in Uzbekistan, and all the other countries of the world, God, would you show your power and would you grant many around the world to ascribe power to you and to acknowledge your majesty and to join us as we sing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.